Welcome to the Speaking Podcast. You can find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com. Hey, I'm joined back by my good friend Daniel Packard, and we had a discussion about anxiety in a previous episode, and I'll give the link for that. And the reason that I'm getting Daniel back is I'm working with Daniel and his team, and I'm seeing a load of things that most people don't. And I asked him, will you come on and just have a conversation with me? Because I think people need to know the real Daniel. So, Daniel, please welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for, yeah, it feels nice to just share the real me. And, you know, yeah, I appreciate that you see beauty and love in me and want to share it with your audience. So it's good to be here. Well, the first thing I'm going to do, I just want that little curveball. We've, I see, I, we've met each other in Ibiza. We were in Estonia, in um, Tallinn. And I know that you went to the UK and the mix of, so you've traveled around where, where feels right. And how do you find, find the travel? I know you've like, you've done fantastic bags the last day. Cause you, you had a, a brilliant arrangement because not only are you actually moving around like that, but you've got a fantastic setup, your lighting and all that, but like moving all your moving where felt, where feels good for you. That's a great question. People will ask me, you know, what's your favorite place? Oh, man. Well, the way I choose is, you know, like anything, sort of the way people choose what they're going to eat at night. You know, they're going, oh, am I in the mood for Thai? You just kind of feel into your heart. So usually I'll go to a country. Uh, I always find an Airbnb with big windows, usually by the water. I was in Estonia living by the water, learning to kite surf. That was really nice. Um, And then I just kind of feel into my heart and I go, is it, it's sort of like dating. I kind of start dating a country. I'm like, all right, let's see, let's see where this relationship goes. A little heavy petting, a little blowing in the ear, see where it goes. Um, But as you may or may not know, uh, sometimes relationships don't last forever. I know, shocker. And I'll just feel into my heart and then my heart will say, it's time to go. And then I pack up my bags and yeah, everything I own fits in two bags. Um, But I call it micro luxury. I I have, I, I don't have much, but I have lots of, nice stuff. Uh, I have, I travel with my own kitchen stuff, my own towels so that when I get to an Airbnb, I can kind of create my little, little bit of luxury. So, yeah. But the one place I really liked Scandinavia. I lived in Sweden last winter, snowboarding in this little mountain town in Sweden and the, the Scandinavians, well, first of all, they speak perfect English and they correct my English, which is also a little bit irritating, but like, uh, but they're very friendly and warm. And I think because Scandinavia, it's a bit of socialism. They're just a little bit happier because they trust more. And they're just very, fr- so I'd like to go back to Scandinavia. I think maybe go to Holland, Denmark, Copenhagen. I don't know. It, you're, if your listeners have any suggestions, let me know. But it's a brilliant thing to be able to do because so many people, they don't even leave their own country. And what I found is I saw more of Ireland when I was bringing Polish people back because I was kind of doing the touristy thing. And I've seen more of Poland than most of the Polish people. And I think sometimes we just kind of arrive at a place, just stay there. But it's nice to explore as well and see like not only the cuisine and everything, but just the people, the locals, not to, going to a high end resort. Because anytime, like even when we met at different events, like I never liked staying in the high end resorts. I always like to stay in the town. If I went to Bali, I was staying in the local place, eating in the local place. And I always found that's how you connect with people a lot better. Yeah. I mean, when people hear my life, they say, wait, you don't go back to the U.S.? I'm like, no, I'm done with America. Like, I I appreciate Americans, but my heart never felt happy there. 
and people say, well, how do you do it? Like how? And uh, what I noticed is because, you know, I help people be basically be free of fear, Uh, not manage fear, not understand fear, not limit fear, not reframe fear, like really freedom. That's what uh, I wanted for me. And when we work with people is real freedom. But what what I didn't know was when my fear went away, meaning my fear of rejection, my fear of failure, my anxiety, when all that fear went away, I was free, which is what all humans want. And then two years later, someone said, oh, you're also logistically free. And I went, you're right. And I realized without even meaning to that the freedom that I'd created, because now there's so little fear, started showing up in all these other areas of my life, including just that I'm very I'm just very free. I really, I don't care what people think of me. Uh, I just travel. I'm just very free. And one time somebody wanted to work with me and I thought they wanted to work with me because they saw one of my talks at a conference, you know, or some brilliant thing I said. And I said, oh, why did you decide to work with me? And they said, well, I saw that you are free. You're always traveling. And I said, and they said, you know, you can't fake that. And it's, it's real. And I said, you're, you're going to work with me because I travel. They said, well, it, it really proves that you're free. And I thought, huh. Okay. So yeah, I'm very free in many ways and it feels good. And it's what I want for everybody. Real, real, real freedom, man. Like I lived a life before this, so trapped, so, so trapped by fear of rejection, fear of failure. What do people think? Perfectionism, savage, like all that stuff that, that holds people back. Just, ugh, it, it breaks my heart when I think of who I used to be. Now, I was still successful because, you know, I'm smart. I worked hard, but I was never free. I didn't enjoy it as much. And also, I just wasn't as happy because I'm always, like, trying to perform. And and now that I'm really just basically no fear, it opens you up to be free. But what does that mean? Fully, Fully yourself. Like, we're really here to be ourselves. Everybody knows that intuitively, you know, when you're in a relationship, the best relationship you've ever had, if you ask people, oh, what did you love about that relationship? They'll say, oh, I just got to be myself. Or what, what were the best moments with that person? They'll say, oh, I just got to, I just got to be me. And deep down, that's what we're all here to do is to be free and then just to experience ourselves through this beautiful video game of life. But because of the fear, you can't fully be yourself. You can't simultaneously be afraid and fully yourself. You can't do both. It's like you can't uh, go do exercise after you eat a big meal. You can't do both. So I wake up every morning really, really me. And I get to really, really, really be me. And it is so beautiful. And it's not temporary. I'm not me sometimes, or if this person likes me, I'm me. Or uh, if, if the pretty girls, you know, that used to be, used to be conditional me. Sometimes I'd be me, other times not me. And now I wake up every morning and I look in the mirror just as me. And it's what we all want. And it's what I want to, it's what I want for everybody. When we work with everybody, um, people will hire us. You know, can you help me with my fear of rejection or my fear of speaking or my anxiety? Yeah. But what, what for me it's about is I want people to be fully free, to be authentic and confident and experience life without fear. It's just beautiful. It's what I want for everybody. Beautiful. And like with kind of, you know, living from a suitcase, because 
I'm trying to be minimalistic. I don't need the latest shiny car. I mean, I went from a state of wanting all properties and everything to losing everything. And I think even though it didn't feel like it at the time, it was the best thing that ever happened. And I don't, I try not to buy things. I, I try to reduce as much as I can. And the only things that I will find hard is books because I, I like a physical book instead of a digital book. But I'm seeing there's a load of people now around the world, you know, they're, they're living in camper vans and, and, I think that's a way of reducing the anxiety as well, because most people are working so hard to pay the mortgage, to pay the car. And like they're not in the house, they're in the workplace. They're not in the car. The car is parked in the workplace or at home. And most of the things they think they need a life to keep up with the Joneses. And the reality is you have to touch within to make sure you're happy. As you say, look in the mirror and like like the person that you see. And unfortunately, a lot of people, they, they're not doing that. No, they're not. And it's not as simple, you know, intuitively people know they have too much stuff. Intuitively people know like, oh, this is more than I need. And when you have stuff, stuff is nice. I like stuff. I used to have a lot of stuff, but there's a stuff tax because when you have it, now you got to make, I, I was working with a very wealthy client and, you know, she had the, the memberships to the country club and she had this huge house with this big lawn and she could afford it. But when she came to me, she was so drained because she's like, everything I have, I got to worry about. I got to maintain it. it. Is it right? Is it? It, it drains you. And, and we don't have unlimited energy. So she had like 15 things on top of her family and each thing drained her a little bit. And I said, yeah, you can have this stuff. But that energy is not going towards joy and fulfillment. And she said, I totally agree. I grew up in money and I don't know how to let this go and i showed her you know that she had some fear around letting the stuff go because the stuff made her feel loved and valuable and wanted and so by show by lowering the fear of letting it go she just she downsized she has a two-bedroom house little tiny lawn she's not a member of the country club you know but she's so much happier so yes we all want freedom we all want less but man there's fear fear tells us no keep it you gotta keep that stuff what if later, what if later you need it? Or what if that person sees that you don't have it? Like fear, fear keeps us from letting this stuff go. So like, I mean, with the speaking, because what I want to touch in, I suppose from an early age with me, I remember they used to go around the class and asking questions and five people before me or even more. And that even, that even, was the exact same to when I was even up to 40 my brain would just switch off in panic mode and I wouldn't have a clue then in school I would be stuttering and be mocked from that and then like I just hated public speaking in meetings I would go into the meeting I was doing very well for the job that I was on I was doing great in procurement making massive profit for the company but when it came to having a meeting I was just like horrified i used to be able to sleep the night before and i was like and what what used to frustrate me is i would see people lying on the business meeting you know using dirty tricks and everything and when somebody kind of touched a nerve with me that fear went out and they saw a different roy a confident roy and they'd all back off because i didn't like i always kind of stood my ground 
But I'd like to touch on that because I know like in America, they tend to be a lot more confident in speaking. But in Europe, it's like that doesn't happen. They're a lot more shy in staying with people on stage. So I know you help people with that. Like, so I'd like to kind of touch on that. Well, it is true. You know, I'm an American, so we have that more over the top, you know, Rocky, you can do it. You know, it's part of our country. Uh, I remember I was told this one story by this. British guy that was trying to explain the difference between America and other parts of the world. And he said he was at an American football match. And at halftime, there was this, uh, you know, game where someone from the, from the stands would come in and if they could kick a field goal, you know, they'd win like half a million dollars or something like that, or win a car. So the person comes down from the stands and they're getting ready to kick the ball. And he said, 50,000 people in America were like, you can do it. We believe in you. You've got this. And he said a month later, he was in England, and it was the same basic competition, and the audience was like, you suck. Go home, you wanker. And he said, like, that's it. So, yeah, America has this on the surface. You can do it. You're amazing. You are amazing. That salad is amazing. First of all, if you eat a salad and that creates a sense of amazement, you need to get out more. Stop. Let's use, let's use the word amazing when children are born. You know, let's just, let's just like, I feel each year people should get words like shocked and amazing, and you get like 80 per year. You can't just throw them around because now also sometimes I've seen this with, with women, uh, and I'm kind of jealous when women comment on each other's appearance, if a one woman says like, hey, how do I look? There's a lot of ways you can describe someone. Nice, cute, attractive. And in America, if you ask one woman, ask another woman, they'll say, you are gorgeous. You are gorgeous. And I'm like, okay, first of all, she's not gorgeous. She's cute. She's She looks nice. But it's always gorgeous. Just And men are different. Like how to... With men, it's like, how do I look? You don't look like crap. Like, you look okay. I would love it if I could turn to a male friend and be like, how do I look? And my male friend says, you are gorgeous. Anyway, what's my point? My point is, yes, Americans, we have that surface level confidence. However, it's surface level, meaning we give ourselves permission to be big, to be seen. And Europe, Scandinavia, we know is a more withdrawn, more, let's just say, repressed culture of like, keep it Keep, keep it inside. You know, England has that phrase, you know, keep calm and carry on, which is really confusing. They're being bombed. And it's like, hey, chill. Like, don't get scared. Just keep calm, carry on. So it's that stiff upper lip. So on the surface, yes. However, from working with a lot of high performers, yes, they give themselves permission to be bigger, but underneath is still that usually that fear of rejection, I want people to approve of me, I want to be seen as successful, I better not mess up. They've still got usually some type of fear and anxiety around that. And you won't see it on the surface, but it's there because, and I work with very high performing speakers. They're good speakers, but when they share with me, they'll say, but you know what? I'm still scared. You know, I'm still that like little boy from the playground trying to get approval. Now they're good enough at speaking that they can deliver the talk. But for every amount of fear that you have in your system, there is a tax that you pay. And this was like two months ago. He said, you know, I can deliver my, my talk. I know my material. And if I know my material, I'm pretty confident. And I go, great. And I say, but there's fear there. And he said, yes. And I said, and how does that hold you back? He said, well, 
what if they don't like what I'm saying? Or what if I'm asked to give a talk and I'm not sure about the material? He says, I'm absolutely petrified. I said, so you're sort of, you, there's a comfort zone where you operate. He's like, yeah, but he says, I want to go give talks about things I don't know. Also, when he's on stage, even when he knows his material and he appears confident, I said, are you really free or are you scared? He says, I'm scared underneath. Nobody knows. I said, but you know. And I said, yeah. And I said, what's the cost? He said, I'm not being fully me. You know, I'm not fully authentic. I'm not fully transmitting my true essence. And he, and, and he says, people can feel it. It comes across just a little inauthentic. We've all felt that. And so I helped him so that when he was on stage, there was just no fear, just none. And he said the difference was one, he enjoyed talking more because he didn't care what happened. He's just in that flow state. But also he noticeably people felt his soul, his essence, his authenticity, and he got a much better response from his speeches with way less work because he wasn't performing. He was transmitting his essence. And everybody, Roy, can feel. People can feel when you're really, really, really you. And people love that and they're drawn to it. So yes, Americans on the surface look more confident, but they're still insecure and scared underneath just like anybody else. And so uh, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. We, I mean, with all the different events I go to, I never kind of know people's religion because it doesn't come up. And I mean, we know each other for a, a good few years and it was only just coming up to Christmas. And then I realized you told me that you, you were a Jew. And I, I, I mean, I, I would said, oh, I need to find out. But then I heard you on another show and you actually were doing something. You were an elf. You might let people know. What was that about? <laughs> I, I have been an elf. I, I've, uh, you know, there's not a lot of elves and there's even more, there's even fewer Jewish elves. And, and for all those of you at home playing Daniel Packard bingo, I was also Santa Claus. And you're probably thinking, Daniel, how did a Jewish person end up Santa Claus? I'll explain. I was living in Vancouver at the time. And the thing about uh, Jewish people is Christmas morning, we got nothing to do. We got nothing to do. And so if you, if you want to, if, in the way some people sort of like follow certain types of birds, migration habits. If you want to follow Jewish migration habits on Christmas morning, go to a Chinese restaurant and you're going to find a lot of Jewish people because Chinese restaurants are usually open Christmas morning. Jews have nowhere to go. And it's a tradition of Jews going to Chinese restaurants. So if you ever want to have fun Christmas morning and you can't stand your family, go to a Chinese restaurant. You're going to see a lot of, a lot of Jews hanging out with a lot of Chinese people. Um, so, uh, a dear friend of mine called Danny Steinberg, um, he had a, a long white beard and he was Jewish. And so he started this foundation or an organization where on Christmas morning, he would dress up as Santa Claus. He got banks and businesses to donate basic uh, clothes, shoes, jackets, um, toiletries, and we would go to the homeless shelters. He would dress as Santa and we would give money to, to the people at the halfway houses and the shelters. And he needed an elf. And I was like, I am in. So I got to be an elf and you know, it was beautiful. We got to be of service, but one year he couldn't be Santa. And he said, Daniel, you, you got to be Santa. And um, I was like, look, I have no problem, but you've got the white beard. You got a little bit of a belly. I'm a thin 30-year-old. I don't know. He's like, well, they don't care. So I dress up as Santa. I put a pillow in my stomach. Uh, I got my other Jewish friend, Alan, to be an elf. 
And I went out and for a day I got to be Santa. And I got to tell you, Roy, it is a bizarre, surreal experience because Santa is the most famous person that people can approach. Meaning if you're a Johnny Depp or you're a George Clooney, you know, you're famous, but people know don't always approach celebrities, kind of leave them alone. Not always. But Santa, people see you and it's like Santa. So after we were done uh, going to the shelters, I, I was really hungry because I hadn't eaten all morning. So we go to a Denny's. I don't know if you know what a Denny's yeah, is, but it's this chain of restaurants and they have, you know, break it. So we walk into Denny's and I'm just exhausted. I just want to have, you know, some scrambled eggs. I walk in. And I feel like a rot there. Just all these kids, Santa, Santa. And I'm like, oh my God, I got to keep the act up. And then, and then the kitchen staff comes out and they're like, Santa, thank you. And I'm like, you're, you're, you're welcome. People just, they, and, and the, and the manager came out and he said, whatever you want, Santa, whatever you want. And I was like, all right, well, I'm going to get, you know. So I'm sitting there and, uh, and the, all this food comes out and I, I had these experiences that I didn't know were part of being Santa. So all this food comes out and all these kids are watching me and I have to eat, but I can't eat because I'm wearing a fake beard and I can't just pull the beard down to eat because then I'm going to tell kids, hey, by the way, this isn't Santa. This is just some rando 30-year-old Jewish kid. Like, I didn't want to traumatize these kids. So I just sat there and would kind of like try and throw a little bit of potato in my mouth and keep the beard on. I failed. I had like all this mess all over the beard. Anyway, I stayed in character. I got the food to go. And then I learned a whole other thing about Santa and elves. So I'm there with my friend Alan. I'm Santa. He's an elf. And we're leaving the Denny's. And as we're walking out, I said, hey, uh, Alan, just stand here. I'm going to go to the bathroom. He says, great. I go into the bathroom. I come back, you know, about five minutes later, and he, he looks shook. And I said, what happened? He said, do not ever walk away from me again. And I said, why? He said, when you're a grown man dressed in an elf outfit and you're next to Santa, it's great. But if Santa's not there, you're just a creepy guy in an elf outfit. And I was like, Oh my God, you're right. So I know we're here to talk about public speaking, but it's turned into an intervention of tips on being Santa and an elf. Now you know, and knowing's half the battle. They're the things that I want people to know about you, because you know the fact that it's even you know like Jewish don't celebrate Christmas with Santa Claus, and to do that to care for people, to care for the homeless is beautiful. When when we met. I remember it was Ibiza A-Fest and I, I, I remember you were on stage and then there was a, a workshop, something else that I went to and I just, I just loved your vibe and what you're sharing and we did the give back day and it was like cleaning the beach for the day and we just ended up being together and it was like, it was brilliant and I just kind of told you about my situation because you were, you were telling me about what you were doing and I just kind of said, okay, look, I'm, I have a kind of repeat pattern in relationships. I don't know if you remember that, but it was like from that moment. And that's, I don't know, is that eight years ago, six years ago? It's a long time ago. But it's like what you said to me just, just worked. Well, A, I'm glad it worked. And when you say that, it warms my heart, not just because we're all here to help. Like we're all here to serve. However, we all serve in different ways. And I learned that I have a unique 
effective way of helping people because at heart, I'm an engineer. I'm like a scientist. And the way I understand myself and people is, is like there's engineering in people. And when you know the engineering of something, you know the root cause of something and you know how to give a person an insight that is two things. One, it's very close to the root cause because not all advice is helpful. The closer you can give advice to the root cause, the more impact you're going to help people. A lot of the stuff that people are sold, it's surface level band-aids and it helps a bit. You know, it, it can help make a bad situation not as bad, but it's not the root cause. And that's just not efficient. I'm an engineer. I want to help people a lot. Efficiency, a little bit of help that goes a long way. So when you say it just worked, the reason that made me so happy is because when I work with people, I'm making sure that the information you get is simple and you can actually apply it to get the real change. Now, when you hear me say that, you think, well, isn't that what all coaches do? Not necessarily. Like I remember before I figured out our modality, I would go to these, these conferences and there'd be somebody on stage that would be like, activate your infinite potential. And it sounded great. I'm like, oh, I want infinite potential. Woo. I, do, I, I Oh, this sounds great. And I'd say, yes, infinite potential. And then surprise, surprise, I'd get home and I'd be like, what the F is infinite potential? I just don't want to feel petrified when I talk to a girl. What, what is potential? Where's it coming from? Where did it go? Infinite potential. I don't need infinite potential. I'd like 20% potential. It's not simple and it's not, you can't apply it. And so it doesn't work and it sets people up for failure. And I don't like this. When I work with somebody, I'm tuning into you and I'm saying, what is the bit of wisdom that I can hand you that I know you're going to be able to apply in a simple way and will create a meaningful shift quickly and give you a victory? It's like if you're a trainer trying to help somebody be strong, you know, you don't walk in on the first day and say, we're going to make you, you know, the strongest man in the world. Here's a thousand pounds because they'll try to lift a thousand pounds. They'll fail. Maybe they'll rip their arms out and they'll fail. It doesn't work to get people all excited about the big thing. What do you do? Start them off on five pounds. Great. Five pounds. Do some reps. Oop, you're up to 10 pounds, 20 pounds, 30 pounds. It works. And the reason this matters to me, A, that's just what works, Roy giving people small things that you can repeat over and over again that just work. But also, and this is what pisses me off and saddens me about so much stuff that's out there and being sold. People get sold these programs that sound cool and have cool concepts, and then they try them. And because they're not laid out in a very simple way, often people either give up or they fail, or it just doesn't help that much. Now, aside from the fact that the person doesn't get what they want, Oftentimes people blame themselves. Oh, see, I knew it. I suck. I wasn't a good student. I'll never get there. I'm not good enough. It reinforces a lot of their negative chatter and they feel worse about themselves. I, I spent $100,000 and 10 years trying to beat getting rid of my fear and then I would fail and beat myself up. Oh, I should know better. I shouldn't do. And I'm just beating myself up. And so the reason when I work with somebody, I just want to give them something that works is so A, they can get a victory and actually change and be the person they want to be. But also, I don't want people failing and beating themselves up. I feel horrible. So when you just said like, oh, it just worked, I'm like, yes, simple, effective, worked, and you feel good about yourself. That's what I want for people.
just staying on the relationship thing because there was some videos that I came across and it was a pilot that didn't take off, but you were so good in that. It was like a relationship thing. And you have a way with you that you're kind of, you were telling the women what was going on with them realizing it, but anybody else saying this, the, the information, they would just blow the, 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 the lid. So you may just touch on that so people will understand what I'm talking well, before I became fully focused on just, you know, my company and helping people get rid of fear, I was a comedian uh, for 20 years. And, you know, because I worked hard and I was somewhat talented, I got good at telling jokes. And then people would laugh, tell some jokes, people would laugh. And it got kind of boring. And I really wanted to try something innovative. I wanted to take the audience on a ride. And I also read this uh, Van Gogh biography. And it basically, the part that I took away is that when Van Gogh was painting, he had no expectations that he was a good painter. And no one was telling him he was a good painter. painter. In fact, people told him he was a horrible painter. So he just painted just for the love of painting. He just goes off and he paints and he paints and he paints and he paints and he paints, and he paints away from any expectations. And because there was no expectations, he could truly innovate and create some a, a, a real expression of his intimate self. And when I read that, I went, ooh, that is so sexy. I want to be myself on stage. So what I did was I had offers from L.A. to come to L.A. and like do that whole acting thing. And they started sending me scripts to be on a sitcom. But it was like, you be the wacky neighbor number three. And like, you'll open the door and be like, hey, everybody, where's, you know, where's the fruit juice? And I was like, that is, ugh. So even though I was quote unquote successful by other standards, I was like, no, I want to be like Van Gogh. I want to create something truly beautiful and new and meaningful, but I have to go away from LA because otherwise I'll get pulled into the ego and wanting people to like me. So I did the opposite. Usually Canadians go to the US to be famous. I was an American who went up to Canada and lived there because in Canada, I was like big fish, little pond. And I was given all these opportunities to perform. And then I started teaching in schools. I started teaching about self-love to nine-year-olds and eight-year-olds. And the beauty of that was I could really explore how to transmit truth by being loving and caring. And I have some incredible stories of being in front of nine-year-olds and 10-year-olds. And I would yell to the audience. I was telling them that love comes from within. You know, now we all know that on some level, but like really, if we could get that into nine-year-olds and 10-year-olds, think how the world would be different. And I was trying to awaken the kids. The talk was technically about bullying. That's how I got hired. I called it an anti-bullying talk. But then once I got up there, I said, if you love you, if you know where your value lies, then even if a bully bullies you, you might not like it, but it won't affect you. And that's what the talk was about which is a pretty deep concept for anybody, let alone nine and 10 year olds. And I would tell the kids that like you have love from within. It doesn't matter what other people think. It's what you think of yourself. And in front of like a thousand nine year olds, I would yell out to them, where's the love? And then the kids would touch their chest and they'd say, the love's right here. And I would say, where's the love? And they'd say, the love's right here. And it was beautiful. And, and one of the kids, not 10, this was, uh, I did a high school the, the next afternoon and this 15 year old kid walked up to me and he reminded me of myself. He had pimples and he seemed kind of insecure, but he walked up to me and he said, 
So what you're saying is what people think of me doesn't really mean anything about my worth. I said, exactly. And he said, so I can just be me. And I, I still have worth because I'm just me. And I said, exactly. And in a beautiful 15 year old way, he just went awesome. And you could tell he got it, but like, think of the freedom that that just gave him to know his inherent value. And then he sent me a message a year later of what that meant to him and how he's more himself. His anxiety went down. His grades went up. He asked a girl out for the first time ever. She said, yes, he had a girlfriend and his just life was transformed by that message. So I know you asked a question about the women, but it got me thinking about what really mattered was to transmit this to eight and nine year olds. That was, that was one of the coolest things ever. That's beautiful. Yeah. I wish they were teaching things like that in the schools because they're the ones that get bullied, unfortunately. I mean, children can be so hurtful and it's usually the one that's being bullied themselves at home that they just kind of express that. And the, usually the bully is the hurting one. Absolutely. But again, if you don't love who you are, if you're not solid from within yourself, you can logically know that it'll still still scare the crap out of you. And one of the benefits of working with adults, you know, um, adults reach out, you know, to work with us and they'll say, I have a lot of fear and I have a lot of anxiety and I'm, 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 I'm just passing it on to my kids. I know I am, you know, I learned it from my parents and now I'm passing it on and I don't know how to stop it. And it's heartbreaking because every child wants their kids happy and they see how the kids are dealing with social media and like, it's a scary world out there. And this happened, I would say like three months ago, a client came to us and just horrible anxiety, but also saying my child is anxious and it's heartbreaking. And, and can you help? I said, I'm going to show you what you can do every day, little simple steps that you can do every day, very doable, very simple, such that you will feel safe and solid from within. And when you feel safe and solid from within, your, your symptoms, the fear and anxiety are going to almost completely go away or significantly go away. And I said, but also when you start doing this, you'll know exactly the behavior to model and how to treat your child so that they'll feel safe from within. And she just said, look, if, if you could just lower my anxiety, that's enough. But yeah, if you could help with my child, you know, I know what we do and I've seen it happen. So about week five into our program, uh, she reached out and she just said, you know, I, I can't thank you all enough. And we said, is your anxiety gone? She said, it's not completely gone. It's down by about 70% in, you know, but the program's not over. But she said, more importantly, the reason I'm saying thank you is because my teenager came home from school and I asked my teenager how, how school went. And my teenager said, well, I got bullied today, but it just didn't bother me that much. And the parent was like, what the heck happened? Because previously the bullying was just crippling their child, understandably. And the parent said, like, what happened? And the teenager said, I've been watching what you're doing. And also the way you've been treating me from this program. Uh, so when the bully bullied me, I just did what I've been seeing you do. And it just didn't affect me. So the power of what we're doing is not only is it very simple, but you're able to transmit it to the people that you care about. And it's so meaningful, as you can imagine, to not only help an adult live without fear, but like to help a young person. I mean, we all know this. If only we'd learned this when we were younger, 
So it's so mean. We also work with kids, but when you help a young person love who they are and feel confident in who they are, yeah, it's as you can imagine. It's it's because it's, I also remember how phenomenally insecure I was, and so when you give a gift, you know that I I know that pain of being an insecure teenager, and so it feels really good. I'm also a little bit jealous because I'm like, man, I wish to God I had a Daniel Packard that like gave me confidence. But anyway, yeah. Like when when you were doing all your research and everything, like I know there was over like three thousand people plus you were like on all different continents, but some was like with prisoners, I believe in Africa as well. There was some you may just touch on some of the stuff that you'd done because I know you a lot better now that we've been working close together and you don't wing it. Like when you're doing something, you put your heart behind it and you really make sure things are right. You're you're not just going to go, okay, is good. No, you you make sure everything is right. You're watching everything. And we've got a good kind of ethic together in here because you see what I've done. You christened me the podfather. But like, I know that before you kind of launched all your research and everything, you were kind of making sure that this works. And so you might just let people know these 3,000 people, the five count, well, some of the stories that you've experienced there yeah and it's good you bring it up because to me again my mission and the 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 company's mission is to develop tools and systems that get measurable permanent results so that what you're struggling with is gone and doesn't come back like that's just what we do now why because like i'm an engineer results matter and we we that's satisfying and most people are just okay giving tips and tools to manage things, but we were really focused on solving this. We wanted to reverse engineer an understanding of fear and anxiety such that if you work the steps in the right order, your anxiety and fear is basically gone and doesn't come back. But to do that, we had to be scientists. We had to be researchers. And no one individual tip or tool is going to get the job done. We needed to not only come up with an understanding of fear and anxiety that made it solvable, but then we had to build a process. But because I told you, I don't want people failing. So we didn't just come up with a theory of like, oh, maybe this gets rid of fear and anxiety. No, no maybes. We don't want people trying this and failing. So what did we do? We're scientists, we're engineers, is we tested the living pejesus out of this. If what we discovered was universal and simple, it should apply to everybody. So I lived in five different countries, worked with 3,000 people, working with people in their pain, using our modalities and trying it out and then collecting data and then testing it and seeing results if the, if the model needed adjustments because that's what a scientist does. You do research. You mod, you know, the, the Wright brothers that were the first to flight, they weren't the smartest they weren't the best. And also the theory to fly, people already had. You can look out a window and see a bird and be like, oh, you need a wing. And in the 1700s, this uh, physicist, Daniel Bernoulli, came up with Bernoulli's equation, which explains uh, how you get lift off a wing. So all the theory you needed to make an airplane fly, people already knew. But theory doesn't lead to results. The reason the Wright brothers were the first to flight is they built a prototype, they built one, 
And then they just kept testing it and tweaking it and modifying it, adding a little bit more power, making a little bit lighter. And through the tweaking and the optimizing and no stone unturned, they were the first to flight. So to me in this program, we were tweaking and optimizing. And one of the things we do is I was working with addicts in South Africa because they found out the work that we were doing and, you know, all they could do was manage the addiction, but people were still, you know, relapsing. And so I went in and I showed them our toolkit and I said, you know, we can nip this in the butt. A lot of addiction is that they're masking these feelings. So if we could just heal the feelings, you don't need to numb the feelings. And they said, I mean, we know that, but how the heck do you heal feelings? And I was like, I'm an engineer, man. So I was working with addicts up close, workshops, trying and testing, seeing what worked and didn't work. And the results that we got were so profoundly effective, meaning people were just quitting. These were lifetime drug addicts were quitting. And when they saw the results, they wanted to bring our program into the national response, the addiction response. And this is one of the key reasons that our tools were so effective. So when we work with people, we're showing them the root cause. And one of the reasons that people are addicts, one is to avoid the icky feeling. But also, they have a belief that either they're not good enough or they don't deserve. So if you think you don't deserve love, safety, or care, can you see that it's easier to put a needle in your arm? Like if you believe deep down, I'm a piece of crap, it, it almost makes sense that you would poison yourself. You'll put crap in your body if you think you're crap. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So I know this. I know that our patterns are deeply aligned with our unconscious beliefs. And so that's why a lot of our program is heavily about healing the unconscious belief. So this heroin addict, uh, we had been helping people quit pot. And I was like, I don't even know if we can <laughs> heroin. That's And this uh, one of the students that came to our workshop, uh, he said, I just want to thank you. And I said, oh, you're welcome. What happened? He said, I, I quit. I said, you quit pot? He said, no, heroin. Well, yes, and heroin. And I said, what, what, what in the what of our tools helped? He said, well, one is the feeling I was trying to numb the fear, the anxiety, the hurt. It, it went away. So I didn't need to numb it. He said, but also your tools helped me truly see I'm enough. I'm worthy. I'm deserving. And he said, so when I went to go put the needle in my arm, I couldn't do it. I couldn't poison myself because I saw my true value and my true worth. And there was no way I was going to poison that. And I started crying. I mean, but can you imagine if the whole world knew deep down that they're enough as is, and they're worthy of love and safety and care? like you just, that's how I wake up every morning. That's my core belief. Think how the world would be different. And so, yes, we help people with fear and anxiety, but again, it's a little bit of a Trojan horse, but what I want for, everybody on the planet that we work with is to wake up every morning with that deep belief of I'm enough, I'm valuable, I'm worthy of success and happiness. And when that's your default, not because you meditated and did it, not because you did a mindset shift, like that's your default. Can you see how, how just much different your life would be and how you'd enjoy it more and how much more you'd get? And the knock-on effect as well, because I mean, hurting people hurt. So when 
they aren't hurting, they're not robbing, they're not abusing, they're not doing anything. Because sometimes it's a chain reaction and they don't get the help that they should. And like, I just wish, and that's why my mission is that more people understand this and they get on board, that they're not going to a therapist for life, that they actually, they actually, they, 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 they're, they're free. They're free and they, they love themselves. It's the most beautiful thing in the world. And it's what we all want. The problem is, as far as I know, this was not easy to figure out how to do, Roy. M most people kind of know about this idea of like, I'm not good enough, or I don't deserve, or I'm insecure, or I don't love myself. They kind of know that's part of the puzzle. I did. But I didn't know how to heal it, and I didn't know how to heal it quickly. So I see people who know that like not loving themselves is an issue, but then they spend years going to retreats, doing affirmations, trying this, trying that. It helps a little bit, but the trick was, can you heal that belief quickly and permanently? It wasn't easy, man. It, we worked with 3,000 people, a million dollars in research and development. It's all I did for eight years because I saw, man, if we can crack this, it gives people real, real, real freedom. But also, as you said, hurt people hurt people. If you think you're not good enough, if you think you don't deserve love, you're just not the most loving, confident person you can be. You can't. You just can't. So people want to be better. They want to be better parents, better leaders, better entrepreneurs, better speakers. But if you have that deep belief, you just can't fully experience your full potential not to mention it just sucks to have a belief in you that says you're not good enough i mean i used to live that was my whole life was i think i'm not good enough and go do stuff to get people to like me and i could go "Ooh, i'm good enough and i look back and i go that is so sad it is so sad it, it breaks my heart that i used to look in the mirror and say unless somebody laughs at a joke or unless a woman approves of me i'm not good enough for love like, do you know how horrible of a, if, if we were friends, well, we are friends. Imagine if, if I was a friend and I walked up to you one day and I was like, hey, Roy, um, I just want to let you know that you are fundamentally unlovable and not good enough for love. But if your podcast numbers improve, then you, you're, you're lovable. Like, would we be friends or would you get rid of me immediately? I just give you a big hug and I put my loving energy and just change, change the vibration. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that, but it's not a very nice thing to say. Yeah. But we have that unconscious voice in us whispering in us all day unconsciously, and it's just heartbreaking. We all you may we not we may not always get love, but we're allowed to have love. People always say, "Well, what about my past? What about this?" I was like, "Hey, Hitler had a girlfriend." Okay? If Hitler gets a girlfriend, we're all allowed to have love. So I want to let everybody know this belief that you're not good enough for love. It feels real. It's an old belief that got started when you were a kid. You didn't get the love and the safety that you deserved. You didn't understand it. And you didn't have the awareness to go, oh, my parents are limited people. They're doing the best they can, but they can't love and protect me the way I deserve. And what happens is you did what all kids do is we make stuff up. It's very scary when our parents don't love us and we get scared and we try to figure out why am I not being loved the way I want? Why am I not? Why do I not feel safe? Now, in reality, it's your parents were limited. 
but you didn't know that. We look up to our parents. We think our parents are great. So if we don't know to hold them accountable or blame them, we end up blaming ourselves and we unconsciously blame ourselves and go, oh, I know the reason I'm not being loved properly. It's it's because I'm not good enough for love. That's what I did. I My parents never praised me and I never got any I love you. So I thought I wasn't good enough for love. So I thought, I know I'll do something that my dad will be proud of and he'll say, I'm proud of you. And then I'll know he loved me and I'll move on. So my parents were very into college applications and having things that got you into college. So I, I thought, I know, I'll go run for class president. That's easy for my dad to get. I'll run for class president. I'll win. He'll say, good job. I know he loves me. I'll move on. So I go, I run for class president. I'm walking home with my little plan. Like I am class president. I'm going to tell my dad I'm class president. He's going to say, good job. I'll know he loves me. Everything will be fine. And I walk in and I'm all excited and I got my backpack and I turn to my dad and I say, hey, guess who's class president? And he says, don't let it interfere with your homework. And I just remember that pain, that pain of like, are you kidding me? All you had to say was good job. It was a total softball pitch. It was so easy. And it, it just, not only did it hurt, it terrified me. I'm like, does this guy love me? Like he can't even say good job. And in the last ditch of, de- of childlike desperation and vulnerability, I, I just said, I'm, I'm going to tell this guy it hurts. And I started crying, like really crying, really weeping, like those that hyperventilating, like, <gasps> and I, I remember he was at the top of the stairs and I was at the bottom of the stairs. And I just looked at him just pleading. And I just said to him, why can't, why can't you just tell me you're proud of me? And he said, it's not my job to tell you when, when I'm proud of you. It's my job to tell you when you mess up. Now, now that I'm older and I understand people, I get it. My dad's limited. He, you know, he was abused. He, he can't. But at that age, I just saw the love wasn't coming. I didn't know it was him. And I blamed me. And I told myself, oh, I see. I'm not good enough for love. And it got put into my unconscious. And then I started a whole life. But when you feel not good enough, then you go looking for approval from the outside world to tell you you're good enough. But the problem is, if you think you might not be validated, it creates the fear of rejection. It creates the fear of failure. It creates fear. And that's because the universe and God doesn't like it. Universe and God made us perfect, like perfect. And when you tell the universe or God, whoever you believe in, that you're not good enough, the universe and God is like, uh, excuse me, I, I like, I'm, I make perfect things. I make sunsets. I make baby giggles. I make chocolate sprinkles. Like I have a good track record and you're telling me that, that everyone else is perfect, but you're broken. No, I'm sorry. And I believe the universe as a way to create enough pain is they pull away what I call the bonus stuff. What I mean is purpose, fulfillment, joy, authenticity, deep connection. This is what humans want. But when we feel not good enough, it creates this fear of rejection and we don't get those bonus things. And I think it's God's way of sort of keeping away those bonus things until you truly understand that you're enough to be loved as is. And when you learn that, as I have learned and helped all my clients learn, the fear goes away because you don't need anybody's approval to feel lovable and the fear melts away. And then guess what happens naturally? What I have purpose, joy, fulfillment, automatic, tons of energy. 
and I don't have to keep maintaining it. It just keeps coming because I think it's universe's way of saying, you know what, you learned the ultimate lesson that you're enough to be loved. And now we're going to give you all that stuff that you were chasing, but we're going to give it to you just because. So that was a long circuitous story, but man, I want everybody to know that your parents did the best they could, but let's be honest, they dropped the ball in some ways. And I have helped so many people just by seeing that they have an unconscious belief. They're not good enough and we can heal that belief. It's gone. And when it's gone, man, I used to hate myself, like hate myself. And now I look in the mirror and I'm getting older and I look in the mirror and I'm just like, Daniel, you are one sexy mofo. Like I do me, I do me. And even though I'm getting older and this happened, uh, this is what it's like to be free and to not have that negative chatter of you suck and you're not good enough. This was about two months ago. I was, I was in England and I saw, uh, this woman who is attractive and we started chatting and um, in the past, I never would have done that. I would, I would never have approached her. So here I approached her. Then we're flirting and I'm flirting and I'm so free. I'm being so free and authentic and she's laughing. And then I think I'm going to ask her out. But then I was almost prepared for the fear that I used to feel because this is what would bring up that fear. And man, I was so smooth and without any fear, I just said, you know what? Why don't we just keep this good time going? You want to go out sometime? And she said, I'd love to. I didn't care that she said yes. I was fascinated that I had no fear. That was the cool part. So I don't know. I used to spend my whole life trying to get people to like me. It was exhausting. And now people love and adore me without any effort. And that is the not only... When you feel good enough, are you free of fear? You get so much more crap with way less effort. It's efficient, man. And I'm an engineer and I love efficiency. Finally, Daniel, as I know you have the 90% uh, success rate, but also like there's different uh, programs depending on if there's your time or team's time and stuff like that. And you've got the kind of modules and stuff that people can do themselves. But what you've also done, which most people don't do, you've, you've set up systems where uh, you can help them with the payment. They've got the people can get kind of paying modules, but the thing that you never say to nobody, and it makes me kind of see the Daniel that not most people don't. I know there's a few times there's been people come along, they really need your help. You have not closed the door on them and you've helped them and you've actually, you've you've cured them and you knew they hadn't got a penny in their pocket. If every therapist that's out there were doing things like that, not, not unfortunately, they don't have a 90% success rate, but it's something that I think people should actually know about you, that if they are coming booking a call with you that when they're doing that, they're helping the person that can't. Yeah. I mean, it's true. We, we, as you know, we're all here to serve and what we've developed. I don't know. Maybe I'm a little bit biased. I think it's the ultimate gift. You know, you have the phrase, you know, uh, give the man a fish eats for a day, teach him how to fish. Uh, he eats forever. I'm like, okay, that's good. Teaching somebody how to fish. What about a person wakes up every morning without pain and fear and knows they're good enough to be loved? Like that's way better than teaching somebody to fish. 
not dismissing fishermen. My point is it's the ultimate gift to help somebody in that way. And so when we, when people come to us, we don't want money getting in the way of people's healing. And also when someone's healed, they heal others and we, we have a better planet. So not only when I work with people, our only reason to do this is to help. And if you don't have the money, we either, we've helped people for free. We've also created payment plans for anybody. If you want to be free of this and not everybody does, not everybody's ready to let their fear go. But when people reach out and they say, Daniel, I'm tired of living like this. I want to be authentic. I want to be open-hearted. I've tried everything and it's all just band-aids. When, when I feel that we will make sure that we help people. And it's also why when we work with people, we don't charge if we can't help you. Now we have a 90% success rate in six weeks, but every now and then for multiple reasons, we can't, we, we always help people, but I don't always help people as much as I'd like. We don't charge you. Why? Because we're here to help. And if we can't help you, we're not taking your money. It's just wrong. Therapists, psychologists, coaches, gurus, man. I spent a hundred thousand dollars. Didn't get much help. Nobody cared. They just took my money, man. They just took my money. And it's not okay. It's not okay. We care about helping people. And if we can't help you, we're not taking your money because we didn't do anything. So, yeah, sometimes people say, you know, well, Daniel, you're an engineer. Like, why, you know, you're not a therapist. You're not a psychologist. I'm like, well, no, but engineers are good at solving tough to solve problems and we know how to work hard until something works and is easy and simple but also i'm not just an engineer i really care man i know that pain of walking around with the fear and the doubt and the insecurity and the shame and knowing there's a version of you that you want to be but you can only access it occasionally or if you're drunk or after a week retreat i lived that pain for most of my life and so now that I know the joy of living like this, and I know that we can then transfer that to people, like, yeah, we, we collect money to keep the lights on, but man, I mean, it's, it's, the ultimate, it's the ultimate gift. Daniel, I had a mission today for people to get to know you, and I think they've, they've learned the, the Daniel that I see, so you might let them know where they can find you, what's the next steps they should do. Well, the next step is if, you know, you're somebody that has something that you describe as maybe fear, anxiety, doubt, overwhelm, any sort of fear that is keeping you from the life you want to live. That can either be if you're very anxious and you want the anxiety to go away, or if you're, you're a functioning, you know, some speaker's uh, are pretty good on stage, but the fear is still there. They're not, they're at like 70%, but they're not at 100%. So if you either have crippling fear or you just have a little bit of fear and you want to be really free to be the best speaker, that's who we work with. You can reach out to us at danielpacker.com. You can see our testimonials. You can learn about our program. You can learn about our no change, no charge guarantee, which basically means if we can't help you, we're not going to charge you. And then if you like what you hear and you see, oh, huh, it's no risk to try this. If it doesn't work, I don't pay. If it does work, I get to be the best version of myself. If that sounds good to you, 
and you want to know more, just book a call with me, free 15-minute call. I'll learn more about you. I'll show you some things about your fear and how we can help you. And if you know you want our help, great. If not, that's okay too. Beautiful. Listen, I'll make sure. I put, I mean, I think they know anyway. It's beautiful that you've got danielpacker.com. It's easy to remember, but I'll put a button the audio in the, the, the video. So thank you very much for the conversation today, Daniel. Yeah, real honor, Roy. Thanks for having me. No problem. So that's all for the Speaking Podcast. You'll find out our episodes on speakingpodcast.com. Until next week, take care.